I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? All right, guys, welcome to Credo House. You are joining us here in studio at uh, our headquarters in Edmond, Oklahoma. Is that where we're at? That's right. Welcome to uh, reality. Yes, we're welcome, in Welcome Edmund. to the Theology theology Unplugged. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> welcome to Theology Unplugged. Good to have you guys. Good to have you guys here in the studio with us. How y'all doing? Doing well. Good. You uh, adjusted to saying y'all yet? It brings out the plural in Greek, you know, so Southerners have, have figured out how to fix English. I know. I know. It works for a lot of things. Hey, Tim, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Sam Thanks, bro. over there. Doing well. <clears throat> You guys uh, ready to do another Theology Unplugged? Yes. Obviously, we we're all be. sitting here. <laughs> um, Tim, are we ready to get going? Because we got, we got a lot to cover. Yeah, the only thing that comes to mind is we are approaching the end of the year, so it might be good to start throwing out uh, just if you are benefiting from this. Uh, we uh, we do, you know, throughout, most nonprofit ministries throughout the year rely on the end of the year to be a time to really get even and get ahead to, to really hit the ground running in 2012. And so if you have been benefiting from it, we would love uh, for you to partner with us so that we can continue doing this. Okay, we have a number we're trying to hit this year. I know last year we put it out there and we said, we need a certain amount before the end of the year. Yeah, well, uh, you know, at this point, you know, even though we are a fifty million dollar a year budget ministry, yeah. <laughs> we're we're actually pretty lean and mean. Only three full time and a couple. Some people, people think you're serious about that. Yeah, some people do because some ministries that do things that we do are that size. But we are a total mom and pop type shop, and uh, we are our budget is much smaller than that. But we are about ten thousand dollars behind where we'd like to be right now, and we don't know what the rest of the year will look like. Uh, but we would love to make that up and then Sam's get ahead a little bit. So yeah, he, man. He heard that. I know. Uh, he's got big... Thanks for contributing. So, sorry, we are $9,999 behind where we'd like to be. Thanks for Sam's that one, $1. That was really a well-meant dollar contribution. Yeah, dude, my I, heart was fully in it. I feel the love. You, I, I do feel the love. And we'll pray that the Lord uh, multiplies this. <laughs> yeah, at least like you'll be able to put gas loaves. in your Hummer now. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, Hummer, <laughs> and that'll give us some dock fees at the at the lake for our boat as well. Uh, but uh, yeah, so we would, uh, you know, we are pretty small, but we would uh, love to make that up. So if you are able and willing, we would love for you to partner with us. But. You know, we're we're praying right now what what the Lord would have us really shoot for. Last year it was twenty five thousand dollars, and by His amazing grace, we were able to make that, and people uh, supported us at that level. And we're just praying now, as we see, we feel like the Lord is expanding uh, what He might be calling us to do in two thousand twelve. That we may expand that a little bit as well. But uh, that's kind of the ballpark of what we're praying and thinking about right now. All right, now. good. Well, guys, we are five hundred one c three. So just to mention that every once in a while, we do exist because primarily. Of your your donation. So uh, please, uh, if uh, you are so led and you are benefiting from this ministry, uh, prayerfully uh, think about giving to our ministry here. Guys, we're continuing our series on the charismatic gifts, why I am slash not charismatic. We're coming to the end, folks. Believe it or not, we are coming to the end here. We imagine that within the next two broadcasts, we will actually hit the end, right? And it will be tetelestai. It will be a completion. Mm -hmm. It will be a wrap. It will be a cut. 
no more talk about this. You know, you know what though? As I look around, I know Mark Driscoll. He's do you know what week he's on uh, on Luke? It's something like week. It's either sixty eight or ninety six or something like that. I mean, so for us to do a series of like fifteen, sixteen weeks, I thought was long, but I think we're uh, actually covering a huge topic in uh, not too bad time. I'm not apologizing for it. It's been a good series. Yeah, yeah. everybody. Uh, I think we have contributed well. We've gotten lots and lots of feedback on this. Do you want to give a sneak preview for the next series? Um, sure. I we are covering. Looking for this in two weeks, we are covering difficult passages of the Bible, and. We're not going to tell you which passages because we don't know which passages yet. But you know what? This would be a great opportunity if you are a regular listener or, or this first time listening. Please email us if there are passages of Scripture that you just really wrestle with and maybe even uh, lead you to start doubting. Maybe maybe if the Bible is true and accurate, uh, send us those verses because maybe those are the ones we're planning on covering. Uh, but maybe they aren't and they're ones that, that we will cover and uh, we'll give you credit for uh, having those verses coming from you. All right, good. Well, guys, we've come to a uh, point in our studies here or in our presentations where we are going to be discussing uh, not just the charismatic gifts, but the history of the charismatic gifts. Now, just to just to back up and get us all on one page here for a moment, guys, look at me. Look at me. Don't be studying right now. The time of studying is past. This is the time of discussion. The Bible is closed. <laughs> <laughs> iPads out and all kinds of stuff, a crash course or something, you know? What what, what do we pay you guys for, to come in here and study right before <laughs> theology? Oh, we don't pay you. <laughs> I was actually running a background check on you, Michael. Just okay, yeah. good. Um, well, let us get, some, let us get uh, reoriented here. When we defined at the very beginning what it is that we are discussing, we talked about a few different elements concerning these gifts that are in question. We talked about these gifts being, in order to qualify for this kind of definition that we've laid out for charismatic, we, have, we talked about these gifts not only being continuing, hence the word continuationism, uh, but we also talked about them being normative, meaning that it should, it should be a part of the local church. It shouldn't be something that is sporadic. It should be normative. We sh- and then finally we talked about this idea, I think it's more of a personal thing, that we should seek them out, that we should pursue them uh, aggressively. Not only are they normative, but we should pursue them as a church. Are we still there? Um, I'm not comfortable with the word normative. I would rather use the word normal. Okay. I, I, I say normal because I think um, they are a routine part of what it is to live out the life of the church normative has a little bit of a uh, heavy-handed you've got to measure up connotation to it such that um, I think it, it's a little bit pejorative, but I'm not going to quibble over terms. But you're I, I would over prefer it. You're normal. You, you to quibble normative. over it, then you say I'm not going to quibble over. It. <laughs> well, that's yeah. normative yes, for Sam. It's normal for me to do that. <laughs> if you really want to go down that road, it's actually a helpful distinction. People tend to use the word "normal" and mean "normative." So, in other words, they might say divorce is normal, and we might say, well, it's actually incredibly abnormal of God's design, but it's very normative. Hmm. He just shut you down. He, he said, did. I'm no, I, I agree You want to scoot over no. here? Oh, yeah. JJ's saying he shut you down. <laughs> oh, shoot. All right. Uh, okay, so when we talk about this issue of church history, I think it's going to be important whenever at least I use the word normative. What I'm trying to communicate is that this is something that has been normal in the church or should be 
normal in the church. It should be normative within God. In other words, God doesn't come and sporadically give gifts and, and give them here and there. You know, he, he's always wanting it to be a part of the church life. And so we move into church history here, and this is going to be to the discussion. First of all, I want to ask you guys, is are these gifts normative in the history of the church? Now back up before I go there, before we jump on that, I want to tell you this. Personally, this is one of the hardest things for me to overcome. I think I've said that from the beginning. I think even Tim said that from the beginning. We've talked about the Bible. We've talked about the definitions of the gifts. I think we're all on the same page. I don't think we're talking past each other. I've said in the end that I actually believe that it, as far as the biblical witness is concerned, that it can be argued for either way, but I actually see the, the points you guys make stronger than the points that a secessionist would make. I think that uh, Acts chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 primarily seem to suggest that these would be normative for the church, that this is part of the church age. Peter says that uh, this is what the prophet Joel spoke about, that that we, we would have these types of manifestations of the Spirit, and he seems to say it's going to happen till the very end. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul seems to suggest that this uh, that that tongues will cease one day, that prophecy will cease one day, but he seems to say that the day that it'll cease is the coming of Jesus Christ, and so I agree that it, that both Paul and Peter seem to suggest that it would be normative in the church, that it would be part of of, of the way that the church functions from here on out. But I have to pause, and I have to ask the question: We've now lived two thousand years of church history. And I have to ask, ask the question, is that what we have seen take place? Have these gifts been normative? Well, let me start by saying, too, I think it's good for people who aren't used to discussing church history to define church history a little bit, too. Uh, what we're basically talking about is uh, once all of the disciples, once all the apostles have died, uh, what we know is, and you can't just look, what, what we know for sure is that upon believing, Ephesians 1.14 says, upon believing, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, who is our deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. And so what we trust and what we know is that there have been 2,000 years of people who love Christ, who have been filled with the Spirit of God upon conversion, who are living God, has been leading the Bride of Christ for 2,000 years. And so what church history is, in many ways, is an observation of what the living God has been doing in the life of the Bride of Christ. And so it is a good—it's not like a mute point to discuss church history, I think, because I think there's significance in that because basically it's an observation of what God has been up to from the death of the apostles to today. And so, you know, some people get nervous with church history because we say, well, aren't we just supposed to follow the Bible? Uh, but, but what we're hopefully doing in church history is observing uh, the Bible being read, loved, and lived out from God's people uh, before we showed up on the scene. Um, so, uh, so I know that now here, I, I know our discussion is going to go this way, so I'll go ahead and go there, is, um, is uh, basically how does church history relate to interpreting the Bible? So we have a Bible in our I have a Bible in my hands today. It's 2011. 
is the Bible my source of authority? Absolutely. Uh, is the Bible the thing that, that really guides, directs me? Is the Bible the words of God? Yes, completely. The Bible is my authority. But what I'm going to say, too, though, is that there is a role for discipleship and teaching. So Jesus said, go make all make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So when you hand someone a Bible, you don't put them on a desert island and say, good luck. Um, you and the Spirit will understand the Bible, and you will come to a complete understanding of God. What I'd say instead is I hand someone a Bible, and then I say, can I disciple you? Then, because I have been discipled, and the person before me has been discipled. And so the process of discipleship, I would say, is I don't hand someone a Bible and hope that they get an accurate view of the Trinity just by reading the entirety of the Bible. I give them a Bible and say, God's people for the last 2,000 years, led by the Spirit, have come up with this interpretation of the Bible that is God is Trinity. And I will share with them the Council of Nicaea and things like that. And so, so when... From that perspective of church history being uh, the discipleship of the body of Christ, I look back and ask church history, how do I interpret 1 Corinthians 12 through 14? Not because uh, church history is the authority, the Bible is the authority, but I would say is that church history is the wisdom of how to interpret the Bible. And uh, and now we're in some that might be a little bit of an overstatement, but uh, if if I come up and say I have an interpretation of the Bible that's new, I will first have a lot of uh, of skepticism because new is not better. Newness is not usually what is preferred. So I w- I would seek hopefully that my interpretation of the Bible is going to be something that the church has always believed about the most important things. And so so here here's where my evidence of church history will be. Sam is more uh, uh, more in church history than I am, but uh, I would say that. Uh, we know that uh, obviously the early church is practicing these gifts. We know that there are pastors in Corinth when they receive the letter of First Corinthians who are praying to God saying, God, please give us prophets. Please give us uh, tongue speakers. Please give us healers for our church. For our church to be properly edified, we need these gifts of the Spirit, and that is biblical, and that is good. Uh, but w- what we know from church history, at least, is is by the time of the 300 to 400 A.D. time period, we have multiple people who are saying, we believe these gifts have ceased. Uh, Irenaeus, John Chrysostom, and uh, Augustine uh, generally are, are all three saying that we do believe that these gifts have ceased. Um, and uh, And should we just, first of all, discuss that, would you think, would be yeah, proper? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Irenaeus, in fact, is one of the most vocal advocates of the continuation of the gifts into his day. And Actually, it's, it's just between the, Tim and I. You guys <laughs> just hang back and, and listen. And so is Augustine. <laughs> Chrysostom was, in fact, uh, the, the first vocal cessationist uh, in the early church. So, yeah, there are multiple... Uh, in fact, I will argue that there is actually a pervasive presence of the charismatic gifts up until the time really of the emergence and solidification of the Roman Catholic hierarchy in the 5th century but um, we can start No, with, let's let's yeah. go there because we we have started off by saying basically set aside his Irenaeus stuff you know right? <laughs> we have set aside we, we have said that the church history basically is against the charismatic movement if we are looking to it as an authority to guide us, especially in the principles that we've said so far, so far, 
it isn't normative. Well, that's my contention. Well, well, so that's the discussion, and and so what most cessationists, what, what my perspective would be is that is Guys, that at the end of I mean, the like, I'm Go sorry, ahead. that's like I have to say on on that standard, then justification by faith isn't normative, and the pre-tribulation rapture of the church isn't normative, and premillennialism isn't normative, and believers' baptism isn't normative. I mean, I could cite dozens of doctrines which most of us around this table would agree are biblical and true that we ought to practice today that for hundreds and hundreds of years were either in utter obscurity or barely represented uh, throughout the course of the church, history of the church. So, so I, I just take issue from the beginning. I do not think that what has or has not happened on any particular doctrinal issue is authoritative for us. It is illustrative, it is instructive, it is helpful, but it's not authoritative. So I, I just uh, would question the, the, the idea that, um, I mean, I, I just sit here and think, for example, of um, just the issue of baptism alone. I mean, Augustine and Luther believed in baptismal regeneration. Um, Calvin was a postmillennialist. Uh, you think of the, uh, some of the doctrines embraced by Aquinas concerning the Eucharist, the Lord's table, um, the virtual absence from about the 4th century on um, of any notion of uh, justification by faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone for at least a thousand years with just sporadic uh, um, individuals who would take issue with that. Um, it, it just... It, it, it's a little unsettling to me that we would make what people during the course of the history did or did not believe as somehow a, a definitive criterion to determine what we should or should not believe. So, JJ? I agree. I mean, I, it, with these kind of premises, I think Luther's work would have been even more of an uphill battle than it was. I mean, there's been times in church history where there has not been a consensus of interpreting scripture accurately and it's taken courageous men to say what does the text actually say regardless of what everyone else around me may be saying you know uh, uh, this, the earth may not be the center and, 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 and I don't care what anyone else says or what kind of persecution I may receive but I have to stand by what I see now would you guys agree though let's, let's just start here would you guys agree that it does create some sense of a hurdle I mean, is there no contention or con concession at all that church history should play a part in the way we interpret the scripture? I, I, I think of I think of Lewis. We need to be neither chronological snobs or or reverse chronological snobs. You know, it, it, Chesterton called tradition the. Uh, 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 help me out. What did, I just went blank. Tyranny of the living. That it's, idea. Uh, yeah, or the uh, democracy of the dead. Yeah. You know. So if tradition is the democracy of the dead, we want to give the dead a voice, uh, but we don't want to give the dead an authoritative voice. Neither authoritative, do we want not, not ultimately authoritative, but definitely authoritative. Well, I, I think the question here is uh, the question I I would ask you is first of all, what actually would count as evidence for you? Well, that's a good intent. one. Yeah. I think we what that. actually would count as evidence? What kind of evidence could we actually expect to have, given the fact that uh, um, um, movable print and, and, and the press uh, for, invented by Johann Gutenberg didn't come about till the middle of the 15th century, that, there was, that Christians had virtually no access to the Bible in their own language, that the distribution of books was almost non-existent except among the educational elite, what actually would count as evidence for or against 
the so so-called normative or uh, pr- just basic presence of these gifts throughout the course of church history. I mean, you know, if, if and think about it this way. I'm just throw this one out. If if what the church lives and does um, is to be viewed as, in some sense, authoritative, then you all are going to have to deal with the last 110 years of church history in which we now have well over 600 million Christians worldwide, all of whom are continuationists, practicing continuationists, most of whom, if not all, would testify to having personally experienced and witnessed these gifts. So um, at some point, you're going to have to deal with that witness of church history. It's it's pretty powerful. It's pretty pervasive. Uh, in fact, we're almost to the point where um, uh, those who study this are saying the majority of believers on the face of the earth now are continuationists, are either Pentecostal, charismatic, or third wave. Well, except but, but for that, the majority that are Roman Catholic, but that's just yeah. another thing we'll deal with as well. <laughs> but, but but that comes from JJ's comment, though, of, you know, we're kind of saying the majority of church history says uh, that we don't see and we don't see these gifts operate in the way that you're talking about, but then now you're saying, and so I'm saying look at the majority, but now you're saying, well, look at the majority of today, and, you know, it feels like both of us are calling each other to not compromise in a way of, like, don't let the majority no. uh, from church history or from today uh, influence your thought of, of how you view Scripture. Yeah, I actually, I actually want to make a case that you can trace the presence of these gifts through the majority of church history. Well, and that's your – so based directly on your question, like what would be the criteria, uh, for me the criteria is not seeing a supernatural God. So men like John Wesley, men like uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, wrote about uh, their supernatural God. You know, like so me, I don't, I don't see th- those specific gifts like uh, of prophecy uh, as being something that my church today is sought to seek out prophets for the edification of our church. But what I would say is that. Um, I am seeking my church to to have people be supernaturally healed. I am seeking my church to uh, to fear God and be given wisdom from God that they wouldn't have if they didn't have a living God in their midst. And so it does not surprise me, like if as uh, Charles Spurgeon is preaching that God is supernaturally doing things in him as he is preaching, because he's preaching about a supernatural living God that's living and well and and a risen Savior. And so. So the distinction that I that I would make is if I see healing, if I see uh, things that can only be explained by a supernatural God in church history, the turn for me is does that mean uh, every pastor throughout church history should have uh, sought for his church to be gifted with prophecy, tongues, and healing? Uh, as as an ecclesiological, as a part of the DNA structure of their church, is that our church is incomplete if we do not have the edification that comes from the gifts of healings yes. and prophecy and and yes. so on. And so so that's what I would say. I would look for those pastors throughout church history to say. As I led my church, I led them in what I was taught through Scripture and what I was taught uh, from those who pastored before me uh, to train me in saying, in your church, you cannot imagine having a church without seeking the gifts of of prophets, of, of healings, and of tongues. And, and so that's what I'm – so I'm not looking for just supernatural. I'm not looking for Augustine just to talk about seeing people be healed in his church. 
I'm looking for him to therefore make the turn that we need to continue to seek gifts of healings, continue to seek prophets, and continue to seek uh, tongues in, so in my congregation. So basically what you're saying, Tim, is that the presence of cessationists in the history of the church proves cessationism. No, what I, what I would say is, is, is if I could go through church history in a time machine and sit down with every pastor and say and read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 with them and ask them, when I pastor a church in 2011, based on your relationship with the Lord, uh, should I seek uh, prophets to be in my local congregation? Should I seek tongue speakers and should I seek uh, gifts of healing in my church? And, and what I would say is, is the, the main swath of church history, uh, when I come back from my time travels, I think would say, uh, no, that ceased. Yes, still pray for God to heal, but, but those things have ceased. And so, like, a, um, or they would inter like Cyril of Alexandria, for instance, in 444, or, would, or he died in 444, but he even had a totally different interpretation. You know, he said, I believe prophecy is, uh, is just people in my church who are able to interpret the prophets of the Old Testament. You know, so I feel like I would not, what I wouldn't get as I interviewed these pastors, what I wouldn't get is them explaining, uh, what I feel like is I wouldn't get them explaining church life as it exists in the third wave of continuationism. Tim, let me push on you there. Since you don't happen to have a time machine, <laughs> unless, unless have you have one no hiding in the record of any pastors, uh, very few yeah. pastors ever saying any such thing, it's all speculative. And since you've just told me well, that you feel that that's what they would say, that's not really very helpful. Give, well, me, give me some actual concrete evidence of why you feel that that's what they would tell you if you got in a time machine and asked Well, them. so first of all, I mean, I do. we do have, it seems like, a general body of people uh, who, by the time of the Council of, Cal of uh, Nicaea, so three, basically when it was safe for the church leaders to all come together after the pers persecutions of Diocletian, the church now reflects on itself. And there seems to be a body of writing uh, at that time of people saying, we believe this is ceased. Uh, then just generally, we do not see any evidence throughout the, the medieval period or the Reformation. Generally, there are a few cases that pop up here and there. But what I would say— What evidence do you have for cessation in the medieval period? Well, so what I would say is coming out of that period, we when you look at any church— any denomination coming into modern consciousness, I would say. So time periods where, where we're now coming up to, to modern day, there are no congregations on the planet uh, that we can speak of generally except for some uh, French prophets and stuff. But generally there's no congregations where I would say, hey, look, people are practicing exactly what Sam's talking about. So I would say that there was, we see no, no people explaining from church history until we get to relatively modern day 18, 1900s that are saying, yes, you need prophets today. You okay, need Tim, in your I church. feel like you still haven't answered Sam's question. Well, well let, let me well, jump in here just for a minute. Um, uh, first of all, what you guys are asking is very, very difficult, as you know. I mean, it'd be like me as a pre-millennialist or pre-tribulationalist, and you guys saying, show me some place that it shows that they didn't believe in pre-tribulation. It's an argument of silence from silence that cuts both ways. Yeah, but, well, but, but here, here's the deal. Here's the deal that you guys are arguing is that this should be normative and that God wants it to be normative. And what Tim is arguing is that God, if God is powerful, if the Holy Spirit is powerful, and if the Holy Spirit is going to bring about his will within the church, not just in doctrine, but in practice, and not just with these gifts or these uh, beliefs that are to be willfully accepted, but with these gifts that came upon people 
you know, just as they were sitting in the room praying, as, as uh, the type of prophecy that is given, whenever you just receive it rather than pray for it, like Samuel sitting in his room and God coming to him and say, Samuel, and who, who's speaking to me? And he says, it is me. These types of things, the Lord in the practice of the church with the gifts of the church came upon the church rather than the church um, holding to a doctrine first and then receiving them. It was something that was part of the practice. I mean, whenever uh, we read it about it in the book of Acts, it's not something that they say, okay, now believe first in these gifts, and then they may occur to you later on. But it just happened in the church. It was normative. It was part of the early church. It was something that came upon people, prophecy and, and speaking in tongues. And, and these, these healings were something that were, that, were, that were brought about not because first we accepted a, a continuation of the gift of healing and then we could practice it, but it was something that was part of the everyday life in Acts so much so that it fills the book of Acts. And what he's saying is that the, the silence of it is deafening to some degree that needs to be answered now well and when people speak about about it like calvin he does say this is ceased and then uh, and then even uh, you know like chrysostom does say uh, this is uh, he says this whole place is very obscure but the obscurity is produced by our ignorance of the fact re- referred to and by their cessation being such as then used to occur but now no longer take place you know so a guy in, in the 350s is saying this is a thing of the past uh, like this happened, and and I would say there isn't any. It'd be as if uh, you know I shared this example with JJ. That the church just knew that these things had ended. They couldn't give a good excuse, like good answer for it. Like I can't give a good answer for why the the ninety ADs was the last time scripture was written. I can't give a good answer for that, but it just happened. I can't give a good answer for why the spirit stopped moving in this, but uh, like uh, like at the time of uh, the Maccabees, uh, the the temple was desecrated, and they had all of these temple items that were desecrated, and they just knew that there weren't any prophets today. So they actually hid these uh, items and put them on a hillside to say, if prophets ever come back then we will ask them what to do with this. And it might not even be in our lifetime. And so I think the church just generally knew, and when we observe, um, you know, Calvin saying this is a time of the past, we observe people, we just don't see any normative. Like, we come out of church history, and we, we see every church in the world basically having a sermon. So every church in the world has a sermon. And we'd say, why do they have a sermon? Point exactly where it says every church should have a preacher who gets up and, and gives a sermon. I can say, well, you know, I can point to areas where it talks about the importance of teaching, but having a church service where there's a sermon, it's just what happened, and it's just the way it is. So that gift of teaching, I see it in every church, in every denomination. It just happens. Worship, it just happens. Giving, it just happens. And uh, But when I would say, now show me the prophets and show me the tongue speakers, I would say, I can't really show you anywhere that I see that, anywhere I see pe- pastors specifically as they are writing commentaries throughout church history on these verses. They're not saying, here is how my church practices these when gifts. Did, when did pastors uh, write commentaries throughout church history? Well, I mean, when, so, I mean, mainly we're talking about when Calvin's writing. We're talking about and the post-Reformation people. period. Well, and then I mean, I'm 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 also leaning on people who say during the medieval time and leading up to the Reformation, uh, we don't see anyone explaining these things happening, and we don't see them being manifested. And I just coming into disagree the time. more. I just well, they they're talking uh, about supernatural things happening, but they're they're not explaining it in a sense of that this this these are these gifts. 
that are being spoken of in First Corinthians. Your problem, I feel like you're problematizing the debate to such a great degree, you know, when you shared the example of Spurgeon, where Spurgeon isn't self-consciously describing the things brought spontaneously into mind to him by God as a third wave charismatic in the 21st century would, that that somehow denigrates the reality of his experience matching what Paul describes in the New Testament. It, that, that just seems to take the debate to a whole other level. So now not only do we have to find evidence to present to you, but they have to use exactly the language we would use to describe it, and their theology has to be fully orbed in the way in which they understand no, its function. I want to say that. I want to But say they're that. just not say, seeking it for their church. I would say that one of How do you know they aren't? When we're talking about you, Spurgeon. Where is the evidence that they weren't seeking it for their church? I think the evidence is that no one was seeking it for their church. How do you know? When Because no one sought it for their church until the 1900s. How do Tim, you know? Tim, do you understand that you How keep, do you know that? You keep were you in, your We're talking about tens of thousands of home churches and gatherings over the centuries for which we have absolutely no written record. How do you know what they were seeking? How do you know what they were praying for? How do you know they weren't giving prophetic words? How do you know they weren't giving words of knowledge? How do you know that they weren't in their private devotions praying in tongues? We have no record of this. No. no. You're well, drawing well, ma- so, so, so we do have we do have some records. So we have we have Montanus, we have we have a, a felt we have a, prophets who were in the town next to uh, Luther at the time of, of, of the Reformation, the three pro- people who said that they were prophesying. I mean, we have we have examples of that, but we don't have any examples that they're normative. Now, how do I know? I think the main way I know is that, um, like, for instance, you would say, how do I know that my, my forefathers ate? And I would say, I don't know if my forefathers ate meals, but I know that they did because I'm here today. Okay, now, so this may seem like a weird point, but so, so when, by the time that we get to where people are really writing commentaries and people are really discussing uh, in, in this scientific way and, uh, and we're coming into the Western world and all these things, um, what I would say is that it's really, really hard to see anyone who is saying these gifts should be normative and should be normal in the church until we get to the 1800s. And so, what you, so there are a few hundred years where it seems like uh, we have this modern-day consciousness of what a church looks like uh, in, in New England and all these other places, so, all the Puritans, so let me ask and you none this. of them are saying— So let me just ask you this. So the emergence of the Roman Catholic um, monarchical bishop in the late 3rd, 4th century, the solidification and the concentration of all ministry and all responsibility to teach and serve— in the local parish priest and his bishop, the complete absence of any access to the Bible so that people could even know what the Bible says about these things, and the um, the virtual eclipse and marginalizing of any kind of lay ministry for well over a thousand years doesn't come into play and has no bearing on whether or not um, these things were normal in the life of the church. The point simply is there are factors that you have to take into consideration in the ebb and flow of church history and the developments that we all are familiar with that can easily account for the relative infrequency of these gifts other than having to say, oh, it must be because God withdrew them and doesn't intend for them to operate in the life of the church. If We could, we could say the same thing about the priesthood of the believer. 
I could use the same argumentation and say we don't have any pastors, we don't have any examples for well over a thousand years of anybody advocating for the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer until Martin Luther in the 16th century. But that's not evidence that God didn't want his people to embrace the truth and experience the blessings that come from it. There are countless reasons why there is a comparative or relative infrequency of these gifts, assuming that there is, which I'm not even willing to assume. I'm just doing this for the sake of argument, other than the conclusion that it was not God's will that they be operative in the church. I think we need to pick that up next time um, with that, with the how do you know question, because I do want to answer that. I want to say, you know, whenever you say, how do you know that it wasn't happening? I've got my answer for that, uh, how I, why I think that it wasn't happening, but we'll have to pick that up next time. Guys, thanks for the the good stuff. Tim, Tim you did say you were going to get a little bit fired up. I didn't know Sam was going to get so fired up, but this is good stuff. Guys. And, and let me just say this. to you, I respect Sam like you can't believe to you. I don't and, anymore, but that's all right. Uh, no, no big deal. I want my I, dollar back. <laughs> all right, guys. Oh, until next time, this is Theology Unplugged. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.